they were starting a new series uh, over the summer months. Not sure how long it will go, but uh, we're going to talk about the uh, subject of the prophets, and in particular, the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to run this through the summer. So, I, old messages for a new world. Uh, for sure, the, the, the world of the, of the Bible and our world are very different. Uh, and when you, when you try and say that they're the same, well, I mean, the, we live over here. If you look at North America and Canada and the U.S., and you try and draw comparisons with the land of the Bible and the time of the Bible and the context of the Bible, you're going to see pretty quickly it's a very, very different world. But that being said, the heart of people is still the same. Maybe there's a little bit of a different wrapping paper, a little bit of a different bow on the box, but the heart of people is the same. And when you look into the work of the prophets of the Old Testament, and we'll try and figure out what is a prophet anyway, because that term is used around quite, quite a lot today, uh, we see, looking at their lives, looking at their ministry, that, wow, their messages are incredibly relevant to us today. If we will take the time to look at them and understand them, because sometimes they're hard to understand, but we, we will see that, wow, what a relevant message for today. And the culture today, especially here in North America, continues to shift and shift dramatically. It's one big news thing after another after another. And uh, there's so much opinion and so much emotion about all of these different things going on in culture. Uh, it helps to look back and learn from what's already there, because you will find, okay, the world has changed, but the heart, not so much. And what God spoke through these men and women, uh, hundreds into 2,000, 3,000 years ago, still makes a difference today. So we're going to look at that over the next uh, few weeks. First of all, what's a prophet? Because that term is used a lot today. You know, when people talk to me, they, they, they call me pastor. And that's okay, you can call me pastor, but I always say my, my mama didn't name me pastor. <laughs> you can call me by my name, it's okay, but some people, they, you know, they like to be respectful and say, well, Pastor Joe. You know, but nobody calls me Prophet Joe. You know, I, I, I thought, I think that would be really, you know, a nice boost for my ego, right, to call me <laughs> Prophet Joe. But you know what? I would stop you. I would stop you if you did. Pastor, I can handle, but because this term, I say it tongue-in-cheek, but this term is used today, and it evokes all kinds of, of imagery in our minds. You know, if we hear in a Christian context, there is a prophet in town, or there's a prophet so-and-so who's got a message, well, they're probably going to get some interest, you know, people want to see what's the prophet got to say. You know, we have these images of, the, you know, maybe this person can see something that no one can see or know something that no one knows or they can predict the future and, you know, maybe there's going to be some action at the church where the prophet is. So, you know, us sort of run-of-the-mill pastors, we, we sometimes wish we had that title, Right. And there's this kind of attraction to the term prophet. Is that really what a prophet is, though, in the Bible? Uh, a few things just for you to understand basically here. The, the ministry of the prophets, and this is Old Testament, this is New Testament. Yes, I do believe that there is a prophetic ministry even today. But be very careful, folks. The ministry of the prophetic is not to a large extent, what we've created it to be. It's different than that. When you look into the scripture, you see most of what prophets do, not all of it, but most of what they do, you could call forthtelling or proclaiming. So what the prophet would do is say, this is what God thinks on this matter. This is God's heart. This is God's view 
on this matter. So they become the spokesperson for God. This is what the Lord says. Take it or leave it. They would be proclaiming, not predicting per se, but proclaiming or forthtelling on behalf of God. In a sense, when somebody reads the Bible and declares this is what the Bible says and does so correctly, you could argue that's exactly what prophecy is, is speaking and declaring this is what God says. You with me so far? That's a large extent of what we see in the Bible that prophets do. And the messages that they had weren't always popular. In fact, most of the time, they weren't popular. Most of the time, prophets were reluctantly called into their ministry. Most of the time, when they spoke, they spoke messages that, that, that related to a general theme that starts with H. H-O, holiness. Most of the time, they spoke with that general theme, and they would call the people back to a standard of holiness that God had already told them to live by. And they would say, this is what God wants because God is holy. And they, would, it would, they were almost like the spiritual uh, policeman is a bit of a bad term because people have a negative view of policemen these days. But they were the people who called the nation or the king or the individual or the group back to God and proclaiming on behalf of God. And at times, they would get into a different type of ministry there, and they would foretell, or they would predict, and they would say, this is what is going to happen in this situation to this person, to this king, to this nation, and they would predict something would happen. But most of the time, the two would be nested together. They make a proclamation, and then maybe they would say, if you don't do such and such and such, this is what God is going to do. This is very different than looking at a prophet as a sort of a spiritual crystal ball reader. This is not what they were. These were the voices of God in the time. Very needed ministry, but often these people were persecuted. Often they were not liked. Often their messages were frowned upon, ignored, etc. So you have different kinds of prophets when you look at the Bible's Old Testament especially. You have the pre-monarchy prophets. These are the prophets before the period of the kings. So uh, you, the first king in the Bible is who? Uh, no. Ab well, Abraham, in a sense, the Bible college professor, yeah. But the, f the first one that they kind of officially called the king was Saul. Yeah, Saul. 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 So uh, he, you have this period of the kings that... that that evolves, if I can use that word, after that. And you look at the books of Kings and Chronicles, and you see all of these kings, okay? That would be the monarchy period. So you've got these prophets in the pre-monarchy. Name me one. It starts with S. Another S. Samuel, good. Wow. Maybe it's your presence here, Jerry, and these people are getting these answers all good. Okay, so, so, so Samuel, he's a pre-monarchy prophet. He speaks. You see his ministry, okay? Then you have prophets in the monarchy. They're addressing kings in situations. Uh, give, me, give me one there. Wow, yeah. Eli, yeah, or, and Shah too, especially Shah, okay? So you see his, his work. That's one of them. There are many of them, okay? But just to get your, your brain working. And then you have prophets who wrote and they wrote long uh, or sometimes short kind of oracles. And their, their ministry was what they wrote. It, it was meant to be read. It was meant to be uh, 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 spoken out loud. This is what the prophet says. And we have their work for us in the Bible. These are written prophets. Name me one. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Isaiah, okay, good. So you're, you're the food must have worked because you're really, 
you're really doing well. So, so just as you have current events today, big polarizing events in the culture, in the world even, uh, you know, you could pick, the, the, even this week, you have, a, you have a really, really big, big thing that happened in the U.S., okay, which I'm sure you probably all know about. But even back in the time of the Bible, you have these kind of big, earth, sort of earth-shattering for their time, for their place, events. And the prophets are ministering in these times. And it's good for you to know the basics of these. I'll go through them super fast today, but we'll pick them apart over the coming weeks as we look at each different prophet that we, we talk about. First, or one of the big events, not the first one, but one of the big events is the, the civil war that took place in Israel. Around 922, people debate uh, about the exact day, and you can read about it in First Kings uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12, and the whole rebellion that took place where you have Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and you have this split that takes place where you end up with 10 tribes to the north and just two left to the south. And essentially, you have Israel in a period of civil war. That's a big, big deal. That's a big event, huge event uh, that largely takes place because of Solomon and Solomon's disobedience to God, Solomon's uh, uh, moral life, Solomon's choice, therefore, of what gods were going to be worshipped, and so on. And you have this uh, almost as a judgment of God that you would have this division take place in the nation this is Israel divided. Again, you can see it in the book of Kings there, First Kings. Next big event, or one of them, probably the biggest one after, is when the Assyrians, and we'll talk a bit about them today, um, take the north, and they conquer, over a period of time, Israel, those ten tribes. Uh, and they would never really be reestablished the same way again. And the Assyrians, the incredibly violent... Uh, two, there we go. All right. Hey, maybe I should start singing. Okay. So we get to the, we get to the uh, Assyrians here in 722 is when the, you have the kind of final uh, period at the end of the sentence. But they are going to overtake Israel. And this is an army of very violent reputation, very cruel reputation. You can read about this in uh, 1 Chronicles 5, 2 Kings uh, 17 is really the culmination of it. And uh, so this is a big deal, big, big, big event, okay? And again, the prophets are moving and ministering in, in these times. Next big event that we see... Uh, or at least I think the biggest one after the Israeli uh, the Israel is conquered there, is when the Babylonians would take the south, and they would come in in a series of attacks and finally take Jerusalem and the temple, destroying the temple. Uh, from 605 to 586, you'll see this culminate in 2 Kings chapter 25. Huge, huge thing. First temple, as we call it, destroyed. The city destroyed the exiles taken to Babylon uh, you know one of the exiles as a prophet his name starts with D Daniel okay good so that's another event uh, and then you will see even in the book of Daniel that the Babylonians themselves who had taken Jerusalem will be taken themselves you know the expression the handwriting on the wall well, that comes out of Daniel chapter 5, where Daniel essentially predicts the conquest of the Medo-Persians against the Babylonians, which, which happens really the night that he sees the handwriting on the wall. It's quite a dramatic story in Daniel chapter 5. This is a huge, huge news event, if you will. And then you will see after about a generation that Cyrus, the Persian king, is going to return the exiles uh, back to Jerusalem. Around 538, you'll see that in Second Chronicles 36. That's a, uh, what we call the Cyrus Cylinder. And Cyrus used to do this. It was his custom 
to uh, take displaced nations, bring them back to their homeland, restore the articles to their temples and so on. And that's a cylinder depicting one of those times in his, his career that he did that. And then the next uh, big event is the rebuilding and dedication of the new temple, or what we call the second temple, which you'll see the dedication there in Ezra chapter 6. So big, big news events. And the prophets are working in these events. They're speaking to kings. They're speaking to the nations. They're speaking to individuals. They're writing. They're preaching. They're, they are at work. Okay? Now, the one that we're going to look at today is probably the easiest one. And one of the, if you're, if you're introducing yourselves to the prophets, this is probably one of the best ones to start. And um, it's a guy by the name of Jonah. And Jonah is most famous for what? The fish, right. He's the guy who got swallowed by the whale. And, of course, our modern modern sensibilities, we say, oh, that's impossible. Nobody can get swallowed by it. You know, we have all these debates about whether or not this actually happened and so on and so on. Uh, better to read the book uh, before you start making those kinds of uh, conclusions uh, because it's a really fast book to read. You could probably read the book of Jonah in 15 minutes. Um, I have it open on, on, on the table here. It's two pages in my, my paper Bible, four chapters long, really, really easy. And the interesting thing about Jonah is he, he's not a written prophet in the sense that uh, he doesn't leave us an oracle per se to read. We just look at his life and we see the narrative of his life here and the lessons that we learn from Jonah just by observing him and seeing how he behaves and what he does, how he interacts with God, how he interacts with people are incredibly relevant lessons for us today. We only know him from 2 Kings uh, chapter 14 and verse 25. He's listed very briefly there, and the king under which he had a particular uh, uh, word of predictive prophecy in that case is mentioned in 2 Kings 14, 25. He's called there the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So we know very, very little about him except when he ministered because of that king's name in 2 Kings 14. This is the mid-8th uh, century B.C. This is before the, the invasion. I'll put the picture back, and you can skip back, uh, Andre, for the people online. This is just before this Assyrian invasion and after the division of the kingdom, all right? That's where we get to. Uh, see this man and see how he behaves. It's key that you understand that it's before the Assyrian invasion. You still with me? All right. So if you know the story at all, we just go through the rough contours of it and not read the whole thing. Um, God calls this man to preach to a particular city. Starts with an N. Nineveh. Nineveh. Now, Nineveh happens to be the capital city of Assyria, yeah. So, again, this is before the Assyrians take Israel. God is going to call this prophet to speak, to preach to the Ninevites. Why? Because it's wickedness. The city has come up before me. I, I want you to go and preach there because there is a, a particular... Uh, kind of morality there that is so bad that it has come up before me. Now, uh, Jonah's response is very interesting. What does he do? He runs. He runs. I mean, he doesn't just run. He runs far, far away. Isn't that interesting? He's the prophet called by God to do something very specific, Part of his ministry is to do that. And yet he says, no, I'm going to hightail it uh, the complete other way. So, so you, you see the little A on your screen there. Hopefully you can see it at home. Uh, that's, 
that's where he is at the beginning of the story, and he's supposed to go over to B, which is Nineveh, but he ends up over at C, which is Tarshish. That's a far, far, like he's making a real point there. This guy, it went 2,500 miles west when he should have been going east, you know, about 550 miles. So he's basically going as far away as is humanly possible. He gets on the ship and he hightails it. He is not going to do what God said. He refuses to do it and he runs away. And he is very efficient in his run. Why do you think he's running? Yes, he, he does not like the people who he's been called to preach to. He, and and we'll, we'll see this later on in the story as you read it. It's, it's, it's uncovered. And uh, so he's going to disobey God. Interesting. And we see a, a first little, little um, lesson for us that, that we'll, we'll sum it up at the end. But it, it does tell us that while he's on this boat uh, with these, these folks who are not uh, Hebrew people, um, he's on the boat and the weather's getting bad, really bad. Like you have a violent storm, the, the, the vessel is going to break up. And we noticed something interesting about Jonah, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain goes to him and says, like, what is wrong with you? How can you sleep? And he says, get up and call on your God. And maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So people often think that the story of Jonah is the guy who ran from God. He ran from God's call, God's will in his life. And, he, and, and God got a hold of him. And, you know, he's, he provided the whale and the whale swallowed him and then, you know, kind of spat him out to, to, on the land. And then he came to his senses and then he did what God told him to do and went and, and you know, preached to the Ninevites and then we kind of lose sight of the rest of it. And, you know, there's something about him under a tree or whatever. And it, and it just kind of ends in our minds like that. Uh, this is probably the furthest thing from what the book of Jonah teaches us. Because it's, you'll see, it's going to teach us something very penetrating about the human heart and about the attitude that, that especially religious folks have to those who are so-called lost. So it's worth noting that he is fast asleep, sound, deep sleep, while this storm is happening. And even this, this non-Hebrew uh, uh, captain says, you better, you better call out to your God and you better do it quickly because we're going to die here if we don't figure out what's going on. And in their view, the storm was connected to some sort of deity. So there's an angry God who has caused this storm, and we need to find out why. We need to find out who. We need to see what's going on because there's a reason for this storm. This is not just a happenstance in their minds. So everybody start calling on your gods. And then they say to each other, well, let's, let's see who on this ship is responsible for this storm. Because this calamity, again, in their view, you may call it archaic if you want, but this is their view. In their view, there's somebody on the ship and something that they have done has offended their God. So they say, let's cast lots and see who the lot falls to. Because in their mind, whoever the lot falls to, and that's a kind of a random system. It could have been throwing little little stones or rocks. It could have been something like drawing straws. We're not real sure exactly what it is, but it was their method of determining this, and it had a random kind of sense to it. And they say, well, let's, ca let's cast these lots and see who's responsible for the calamity, and guess who the lot falls to? Mr. Jonah. 
And so they, they, they say, well, you know, what, what did you do? Who are you? What's your country? What's your story? Because according to what we just did, you are responsible for this trouble. And he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea. Interesting. The sea is their enemy right now. And the land. And this terrified them. And they said, well, what have you done? Because if your God has made the sea, well, your God just made the sea very, very angry. And so he says that he's running from God and the sea gets more and more rough and more and more angry. And they say, well, what do you want us? What do we do to make the sea calm down? Because you say your God controls the sea. So what do we do? And so Jonah says, throw me overboard. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a way to think about it. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And the, obs- the, the, the reaction of the sailors is striking here. Because they do not want to do this. And they say, look, let's find a way to get back to land. Let's, let's see if we can do this another way. Because we do not want to be held responsible for your death. We do not want to throw you overboard. And they start crying out to God. Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And they throw Jonah overboard. And of course, the sea grows calm. And then they even do more than that. After he's gone, presumably dead, they start to sacrifice to the Lord. We don't know what what type of sacrifice, but they make some kind of sacrifice to the Lord. They fear the Lord and they make vows to him. They didn't even know him before the storm. Now they revere him. There is an air of repentance in their behavior. And that is key to the story. These folks are making vows to Yahweh. Wow, that is a real change of heart. They, they are calling him by, you see this name Yahweh three times here, and they are making vows, they're sacrificing to him. They do not want to offend him. Wow, there is a definite air of repentance there, a definite change of heart, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was famously in the fish for three days and three nights. We know this, uh, Jesus mentions this in reference to his own resurrection. Now, inside of the great fish, and these pictures that I'm putting on the screen are from a stage play uh, of Jonah's life uh, done in in, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I've mentioned that to you before. And um, uh, here you see in chapter 2, Jonah stuck inside of the the great fish. Well, Jonah's going to pray. Remember, the sailors prayed. These are, these are not Hebrew people. These are ungodly people who were introduced to in the story. And all of a sudden, they change, have this massive change of heart. And here, Jonah is going to pray. And his prayer is very interesting. Because while the sailors' prayer includes a kind of a repentance there, you will see if you inspect Jonah's prayer that his prayer is suspiciously devoid of repentance. Remember, he disobeyed God. Hightailed it the other way, went off to Tarshish. Now he ends up in the whale. Should he, is he surprised? Apparently not. He's not surprised that, you know, he's been thrown overboard. He's the one who asked for it. And he, he senses, as you read his prayer here, that he kind of deserves it, but his prayer is a prayer of God save me. 
God rescue me. God deliver me. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And from the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. And you hurled me into the deep and into the very heart of the seas. And um, the, the waves swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and the deep surrounded me and the seaweed was around me and so on but you brought my life up from the pit oh lord my god you know god's a rescuer god's a deliverer god's going to save me he's my savior he's my rock all good all good when my life was ebbing away i remembered you lord my prayer rose to you to your holy temple verse 8 those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Oh boy, this is a very interesting part of his prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols. In his mind, who are the people who cling to the worthless idols? The Ninevites. The people, the very same people who he's supposed to preach to. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. For what I vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Hmm. And the Lord commanded the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah onto the dry land, we're told. Why does he not say, forgive me for my disobedience? He never says it. He talks about the rescuing power of God, for sure, for sure. He talks about uh, how God remembers him. Great. He throws in this part about these nasty people who cling to these idols, who forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But he never says, God, I'm wrong. Forgive me, I'm wrong. I, I disobeyed you. I caused all of these problems. He doesn't put himself in sackcloth and ashes. He doesn't, there's no posture of repentance in this prayer. It's a really good looking prayer on the surface. But one wonders, where's the repentance? How is it that this group of sailors seem to be more repentant than even the prophet Jonah? Hmm. Chapter 3. And God says to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim to it the message I will give you. And lo and behold, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. See, and that's where we stop reading. And we say, well, you know, he, God got his attention by swallowing him in a whale, and now he's cleaned up his act, and he's going to go and do his job. And we tend to forget about the rest of the, of, the, of the book after this. And so we're told that it's a very important city, and it takes three days to, to visit and so on. And so he goes into the city the first day, and he proclaims, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Here's the prophet, right, doing his thing. The morality in this, in this city, the godlessness in this city, you've got 40 days, and in 40 days this city is going down. Remember his prayer, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. In 40 days, Nineveh, you're going down. And he's looking at his clock, waiting for it to get to day zero. And he proclaimed this. And the Ninevites, what's their reaction? They repent. What? They actually followed what Jonah said. They actually heeded the prophet's call to repentance. They actually took it seriously. You see the theme here. You've got these sailors in the boat who don't even know about God. They show repentance. You've got Jonah with the kind of a strange prayer inside the belly of this whale, seemingly devoid of a smidgen of repentance. He goes and preaches to these Ninevites, and the Ninevites of all people, this city of 120,000 people, we find out later on, 
repent. They believe God. And what do they do? They declare a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, and they put on sackcloth. This is a picture of, of a repentant posture. And the news reaches the king of the, of the city of Nineveh. He gets up from his throne. He takes off his royal robes. He, he's humbling himself, takes off his royal robes, covers himself in sackcloth, and sits down in the dust. Wow, you talk about a picture of repentance. That's very deliberate. And then he issues a proclamation across the city, a law, if you will. And he makes a decree. This is the king's decree. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. I mean, he's declaring a fast, a strong, strong fast. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. How one covers a beast in sackcloth, I'm not sure. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That's a very definitive statement of repentance, a declaration of repentance that he's issuing across the whole city. Impressive, impressive change of heart. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he did what? He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Forty days and God saying, nope, these people have repented. I am not going to bring destruction to this city because the people have responded and have repented due to the prophet's message. Fascinating response from uh, Jonah. Again, you see he's quite obedient to prophesy. Beginning of chapter 3, he does what God tells him this time. He goes and delivers the message. And I'm sure he was quite, quite uh, uh, satisfied with delivering that message of doom and destruction to these wicked people. But yet he is not loving toward these people. God is loving toward these people. But his prophet is not. He's obedient to prophesy. But he is unloving to these people. And you can see it uh, in, his, in his reaction after God says he's not going to destroy these people. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. I mean, you would think that the prophet would be like, wow, the message worked. God gave me a message. I delivered the message and the message worked. The people repented. Praise the Lord. He is slow to anger and bounding in compassion. Praise the Lord. He, yeah, he delivered me from the fish. You know, I was dumb. I was disobedient. I was rebellious. And look at how God still used me. And I preached to these people and these people responded and repented. Praise his name. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. No, he's greatly displeased. The people repented and it makes a prophet very, very upset. And he prayed to the Lord. And look what he says. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This, that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish and hightail it 5,000 kilometers away there or miles. I forget. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew that you would save these people. 
I knew that you would not destroy these people if I preached to them. And I I do not like that. I want these people destroyed. And you are saving them. Because, God, you're being consistent with your character and your nature. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in love. It makes me angry. Because the truth is that this prophet despises the Ninevites. He despises them. We don't know why. Maybe some of his family were affected by them. We don't know why. We don't know what the reason is. But the incredible contrast where a prophet of God, a spokesperson on behalf of God, despises the audience that God loves and that God cares for. The lack of repentance in his heart, the, the, his, the posture is totally devoid of repentance. He was disobedient. The sailors respond to God. The Ninevites respond to God. But Jonah's heart, the prophet's heart, is as hard as stone. He's obedient, but he's unloving. And he's angry. Why? Because the Ninevites repented. And God was gracious, and God was kind to them, and he can't stand it. And you see in chapter 4, he's going, to, he's going to go and pout, and he's going to go and sit on a hill, and he's going to wait and see, you know, maybe God's going to send lightning and fire and smoke this city, you know, of, of Nineveh. Maybe, maybe God will do something. No, he doesn't. In fact, God kind of plays a bit with Jonah. He, 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 he puts a, a vine over his head to shelter him, and then he has, a, he has some type of worm or something. We don't know the, all the details. Consume the vine, and then he sends heat, a scorching wind on Jonah, and he's angry. He's angry. He's angry. And God questions him. He said, why? Why do you have a right to be angry? Are you angry about a tree that I put over you? You're angry about the worm that ate the tree. You're angry about the scorching wind. That's what you care about? You care about those things, Jonah? He says, well, what about these people, Jonah? What about these people who don't know their left hand from their right hand? And you see this kind of questioning that God takes to Jonah in chapter 4. And this guy is so mad, he's so angry that guess what? He just wants God to take his life. He just wants to die. He's so angry, he says he could die. Wow, you ever been that angry before? That is some kind of anger. He loathes these people, and he, maybe he loathes his own reaction to these people because he's a prophet of God. He's not supposed to have this reaction. He's, maybe he's conflicted. And God says to him, do you have a right to be angry about this vine that I took from you? You know, I do. I am angry enough to die, he says. And verse 10, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it. You didn't make it grow. It's all my doing to provide for you. And you get upset when it's taken away. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. What's What's he saying? That's an illustration. They're spiritually blind. They're blind. They don't even know their left hand from their right hand. And they have a whole bunch of livestock as well. It's a really, really significant city with 120,000 people in it. And this is the book that ends with the question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And the book ends. We don't know what happens to Jonah after. He drops off the pages of the scripture until Jesus brings up the story as an illustration, a picture of his resurrection three days, three nights. 
What are the messages that we get from this man? I see four of them. Uh, number one, watch out for what I'll call false peace. Watch out for false peace. There's a lot of, a lot of um, uh, uh, talk and uh, 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 understanding and almost even theology about this idea of, well, you know you made the right decision when you have peace. So just look for peace. If you have peace, you made the right decision. Be careful. Not always. Not always. Some decisions that we see in the scripture do not cause peace to the individual. They cause great turmoil to the individual. I'm thinking of one person, uh, Jesus, who was in turmoil about his decision to be obedient to the cross. You don't see him falling asleep. You see the disciples falling asleep that night, but you don't see Jesus falling asleep. You see him sweating drops of blood. He's in so much turmoil. Be careful of a false peace. It's not always an indicator. Here you have Jonah fast asleep on the ship, fast as out like a light, probably snoring. And here the captain says, what in the world is wrong with you? Don't you know what's going on? We're, we're about to be torn to pieces and you're falling asleep. Now, some people could say, well, you know, he was exhausted. There's nothing in the text that suggests that he was exhausted. Everything in the text says he's getting out of, he, he doesn't want anything to do with what God wants to do. And that's it. That's all. And he hightails it over, over to the West. Watch out for false peace, folks. It's not always an indicator that what you're doing is the right thing. Number two, repentance and rescue are connected. You want to be rescued by God? You want to be delivered by God? You want God to get you out of trouble? Make sure you've got repentance in your mix. Because when you don't have repentance and you're looking for rescue, you may not get the rescue you want. <laughs> because God may want to impress upon you that you need to repent from something here. You want a solution to your problem? You want a rescue? You want a deliverance for your problem? Are you, are you uh, uh, an old preacher used to say it, are you on praying ground? Are you, are you, uh, what's your, don't you know that you have this thing in your life over here that you haven't addressed and you want rescue? And sometimes we have to realize y you can cry out for rescue all you want, but if you don't have repentance, you may have lost something. The two of them are often, often connected in the scripture. You see it here in the story. He wants to be rescued, Jonah, but his prayer is devoid of repentance. His heart is not changed. We don't see any indication that his heart's changed even to the end of the story. Number three, you can be obedient, but be loving also. Sometimes, we, especially we in the, in the church setting, we can be very obedient to God. But we can be so unloving to people at the same time. And we, we sometimes can get proud about our obedience. But man, it can be so unloving at the same time. The Pharisees were like that in Jesus' time. This is why he had an issue with them. Because they were very obedient Oh, we follow this law. We follow this law. We even invent laws. They even invented laws of their own to follow. They're, they're so obedient, right? But they're so unloving and so hypocritical to others. And this is why Jesus had issues with them. Be obedient, yes. God wants you to obey, yes. But be loving toward other people. And number four, share in God's concern for the lost. This book is read in, in the Jewish culture on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They read it in the synagogues because it shows the grace of God, shows the kindness of God toward people. God cares about people who don't know their left hand from their right hand. He cares about the lost. We use the term in church settings. It means the person is spiritually blind. They don't even know that they're spiritually blind. We've got to share in God's concern for people who do not know him. He has that concern. We, he has that care, that love for people. We see it here. This is back in the Old Testament, folks. 
This is, this is in the 8th century B.C. And here you have Jesus saying, for God so loved the world. Much later, for, but he's saying the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He still loves the Ninevites. He still loves the people with the worst reputation. The people who are the farthest from God. God still has a concern for people. He still has a love for people. He still wants to save people. But do we? Or do we have a, oh, these, these people, these horrible, sinful people, I just wish they would get out of my life. I don't, I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to associate myself with them. They're, they're what they do and what they say and what they believe, and it's just awful. Be careful, folks. You don't end up like Jonah. If a prophet was susceptible to that kind of callous heart, it's a lesson that we can be too. So these are at least four little lessons from the message of Jonah and watching his life. Uh, Let me challenge you over the summer months. And uh, even on Wednesday night, we're going to start a series dealing with this. Folks, wow, is is the climate ripe for you to share Jesus with people. My goodness, you couldn't ask for a better situation on planet Earth to share Jesus with people. Wow. When you have these things happening around the world, when you have these discussion points with people, it is, it is a ripe opportunity to bring up Jesus in the conversation. But to do so, You have to share in God's concern for lost people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. Uh, This old story, famous story that we we know. uh, And I pray, God, you would help us to be impacted by it in a new way, in a different way. And you would would fill people, you would empower people with your spirit uh, to be able to go out into their their communities, their homes even, their neighborhoods, uh, their places of work, wherever they are, God, and people would be salt and light. People would have love for those who have no faith or a different faith. And Lord, we would just catch your heartbeat and your pulse for people. Once again, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you today and uh, enjoy the heat outside. And um, pray for our our band to recover quickly. We look forward to having them back next week. There's still a little bit of snacks that I see at the table. Remember to pick up your kids in screen 11. Have a great Sunday.